0: Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising.
1: The Global Story, with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out
2: more. Hello, I'm Audrey Brown, and today in Focus on Africa on the BBC World Service, we're hearing from young people in South Africa who just can't find jobs.
3: There's only a certain amount of jobs, and the people here, they need that qualification of secondary high school. Like when I'm sitting looking after my sister, I think about, is this really how I'm going to spend the rest of my life? And when I go look for the job, they never tell me, sorry, sir, you don't have the right qualifications. I feel like giving up. We'll also
2: be discussing solutions to the problem. Our other conversations include the military and economic agreement between Turkey and Somalia. But why has the breakaway region of Somaliland been reacting to this news with these words?
4: Your ideas and your outcry will never work. We will implement this MAU with Ethiopia and you cannot stop it. You will only make us your enemies.
2: And as ECOWAS absorbs the loss of three of its members, we're exploring whether Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso can go it alone in their new union. It's Thursday, the 22nd of February. First, we go to South Africa. It was once known for gold and diamond production, excellent financial services and superb infrastructure. It was also known as the most industrialized and biggest economy on the continent. It is not that today. Instead, South Africa has the highest unemployment rate in the world, according to the World Bank. Its infrastructure is not what it once was. Crippling power outages and a decline in mining has reduced its economic growth to a struggling 1 or 2 percent a year. In his national budget speech yesterday, Finance Minister Inok Kodongwana acknowledged South Africa's economy is facing a tipping point, with growth estimates from analysts and researchers pointing downwards. Bonga Makanya is the executive chair of the South African Youth Economic Council, and he gave us his reaction to the finance minister's speech.
4: I think as an ordinary young person from South Africa, having listened to the speech by the Minister of Finance yesterday, We're caught between a rock and a hard place because um, not much has changed in terms of the political rhetoric that we've been hearing over the years, which in the main has been anchored around fiscal austerity. And of course, um, that's quite concerning for us because we believe that in times of crisis that we're in, especially for young South Africans, we need aggressive fiscal spending um, to fund infrastructure projects, to fund... Youth development and to fund um, skills development programs across government. Um, however, we've seen the finance minister come out, you know, quite boldly to say that the priority for them is to stabilize finances and stabilize South Africa's fiscal position by reducing the budget deficit and reducing our just overall spend, you know, to stabilize our fiscal position. So, as young people, we were hoping to hear, you know, programs that will, you know, look more like aggressive fiscal spend, but we've seen the opposite and um we are hopeful over the future only because of course it's an election year and we're hoping to see what the different political parties will have in store for us and we'll be assessing the different manifestos and of course then taking a um, position to say what is the best alternative at this point in time but of course we would be supporting and looking for political parties that are youth-centered in their programs that will prioritize the needs of the poor and the most vulnerable in the society and prioritise transformation and prioritise government programmes that seek to better the lives of ordinary young people.
2: That's Bonga Makanya. South Africa has had a difficult past, emerging from an oppressive, racially-based system called apartheid just 30 years ago when a democratic election brought Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress to power. The overhang of apartheid is massive. But with youth unemployment at 61%, the ANC, still in power now, has to find answers, and fast. Because a United Nations report on unemployment described the situation as a ticking time bomb. Let's hear testimony from a 19-year-old South Africa describing his frustrations.
3: So I'm from Cape Town in South Africa. I dropped out of school in grade 10. I've been looking for a job but nobody was willing to give me one because I need to have grade 12 and I need to go back to school for that but I can't because I have things to do at home like responsibilities. In our area there's only a certain amount of jobs and the people here that don't take our kinds like they need that qualification like grade 12 of secondary high school. Like when I'm sitting looking after my sister I think about is this really how I'm going to spend the rest of my life and when I go look for the job, I go to an interview and so, then they will tell me, sorry, sir, you don't have the right qualifications. And after that, I just try. Like I feel like giving up because I've been to five different places in this month. None of them took me. It's really upsetting me.
2: There are initiatives to try and address the situation. Kirsten Alexander is part of Empower Youth, an organisation that brings together the private and public sector to try and provide training and work for young people in Johannesburg from a first step is um,
1: education, not just education in terms of the schooling, but education in terms of the types of careers available to them, as well as the push from many parents to push their children into jobs that require them to study further, such as accountancy, doctors, etc. And there's a great gap in the fact that we really need artisanal skills. And if we can get our, our youth to become very interested in them and offer programs in terms of that, we're going to solve a bunch of other problems too, such as the fact that the majority of plumbers in South Africa, the average age is 50, which means that we're running out of skills just in that particular space. So if we can start spreading different skill sets and giving youth opportunity to to get into those skills we can start really getting them into careers that'll make a big difference in their lives as opposed to just jumping onto a learnership. Um, many of our youth
2: do serial learnerships. Is that like an apprenticeship?
1: It's No, it's not an apprenticeship. It's less than that. It's basically you'll, you'll go into a company and you'll do workplace learning. So whether it's a, a six-month thing or a one-year thing, like an internship, a paid internship, they get paid a very small stipend, and this goes to grad
2: to graduates, right? Rather than it's it's not skills based. It's it's more for graduates, is it?
1: Or school leavers, right. um, Anyone who has them a metric, yeah. We've got so many unemployed graduates as well. So it's, skills don't really matter.
2: Okay, but you, you were saying there that people are focusing. In one particular direction, and that is on professional skills rather than artisanal skills. Yes. Has that got to do with the fact that in previous generations under the apartheid regime, black South Africans in particular were consigned to those kinds of jobs? And that's why their parents want what they consider to be more and better for their children.
1: Absolutely. That's definitively something that has had an impact. But we do see more and more young people getting into um, some of the creative industries, which is also a sort of no-no from that traditional aspect. So there there is an element of that. There is an element of a cultural thing. But then, of course, we don't have um, opportunities. I mean, there there are so many unemployed doctors in South Africa. So (laughs) when you you go into that aspect, it also becomes a huge problem.
2: But why, why is that the case? I know that, you know, the economy is not growing very well. It's between 1% and 2% at the moment. We need about 6% growth in South Africa mm. to start creating enough jobs for the people who enter the workforce, about 700,000 of them, according to analysts every year. That's just to cope with them. Why is the economy so shrunken? I mean, you deal with business people, you deal with companies that have answers or reasons for this, no?
1: Yes, we do. I think, though,
2: I wouldn't want to
1: comment on (laughs) governmental policy in terms of that. I think the short answer would be that budgets are, are being pushed into the wrong direction. We know that the government employs the majority of people in the country. And we also know that the civil servant salary rate is higher than most places in the world, comparably. So there's that, you know, just pushing budgets. Our healthcare budget is incredibly low teachers aren't paid enough, nurses aren't paid enough. So there's a sort of misdirection of funds in terms of that. So the people that you work with, what responses do they offer? What solutions do they offer? So we work with both private and public organizations. All those organizations are either private companies who are offering actual jobs. And what they'll do is they'll take on a youth who's got to meet a specific criteria, whether it's their metric results um, from a maths and science point of view or depending on what they require. And then they'll put them into an internship and that would then be workplace learning, but with a guarantee of a job afterwards. So this is what we try and achieve as opposed to someone being an intern and then after a year they're left high and dry with some skills but no job prospect. So what we try and put into place is if you're offering a youth an internship, we need you to then guarantee that they'll have a job as long as they meet all the regulations and criteria. If you're offering them a bursary, what is your exit strategy? How do they then find a job afterwards? So so we've got a whole network of the way in which we work. So if you've got a training institution that is giving our youth training on digital skills, for example, they need to then be able to tell us once this young person has finished their digital skills training, they will be employed by ex-company that this training institute has a relationship with so it it becomes a network thing it becomes a collaborative effort and how Um, many
2: people are you able to offer these positions in a year
1: we've done about off the top of my head sorry i don't have all the stats right in front of me more or less um in the past yeah more or less in the past two years we've managed to get three thousand youth into jobs actual jobs We've managed to get approximately 5,500 into training, which will lead to jobs. And then we've also managed to get another 2,000 into things like last mile delivery. So they've been trained on on how to drive and then they can then be delivery drivers. You know, in terms of those kinds of, I'm not terribly sure they're
2: not professional jobs. So a range of skills from basic things Mm. like driving to, which is highly skilled, to, I suppose, working in... in... Solar
1: installations.
2: Right. So tell me this, what do young people say about this? You must talk to them about the frustrations that they face in trying to find jobs. Yeah, listen,
1: young people are, are for the most part, disillusioned. They're not terribly sure how to find jobs. So when we look at young people in what we would call marginalised areas, youth that are are in townships that are quite far from the city centre, Firstly, it costs them around 90 rand to go into a sort of central place where they could apply for a job or go for an interview. That's 90 rand that they don't have. So there's that frustration. There are not a lot of jobs being offered in the areas in which they reside, which, you know, we can't sort of build hundreds of different hubs, but that's quite a frustration for them. The other one is they're not terribly sure what careers are available for them. There are consistently new careers coming about. I mean, we know with AI, there's a whole lot more. I mean, there are jobs that we didn't know about three years ago that are now in demand. And just being able to access information on these new things, and one of those things
2: that impedes them is data. Mobile data. Yeah. Yeah, because in South Africa, it's very high, right? The costs.
1: Very high. Wildly unaffordable, actually. So a lot of the free sites that these youth can get hold of aren't giving them the information they need. So that's an impediment as well, just in terms of getting information about what is out there in the world. Also not necessarily being educated on how to spot a scam in terms of job offerings. There are a lot of those. So you'll find a youth who says, oh, this looks like a good job. I've got to go there into town. i have got to spend 90 rand. I go there. I stand in a queue for however long, four or five hours, only to find out that it's actually a scam. And that's and, something
2: that affects youth across the continent, actually. I should just say for the benefit of our listeners yeah. that 90 rand is about $5, which is a lot of money for somebody to spend on an opportunity that may not pan out. People are sort of issuing dire warnings here about the effect of the, of all of this. What does government bring to the table In an initiative like yours, do they offer you solutions? Do they help you? We do partner with some departments of government.
1: One of the things that the government is doing is offering youth work experience, because we know you need work experience in order to access a job. So they are offering that, which is helpful, absolutely. They have a number of different sites that enable them to access opportunities, to see where their opportunities are and apply for them so there are things happening but i think there's a misconnect between private and public and public and public if different departments in government sort of collaborated For example, if we got a number of young people trained in building skills and the Department of Human Settlements went about employing them, we could solve a couple of problems there, which would be the need for housing as well as employment. But I think that every single department seems to have a mandate and they stick to that mandate and there isn't much collaboration. A lot of youth are sort of relying on on the private sector to employ them, but the private sector also has a number of different requirements. You need to have X amount of experience. You need to have this kind of training. So it's very difficult. There's a disconnect is what I'm saying.
2: Um, So, So no joined up thinking in terms of trying to solve the problem. Do you think it will get better? I mean, 30 years after the first democratic elections in South Africa, that the extent of the crisis in the country with almost 70% of people unemployed will actually organize groups to politicians and others to make a much more concerted effort to address the problem.
1: I can only say that I really hope so. If initiatives like ours, Empower Youth, we, we know we have a model that works. If those kind of initiatives can get more support and perhaps more people doing it, we could make inroads. I must say, though, that as an aside, there are many many youth who are incredibly vibrant and innovative and a lot of them are starting their own businesses so the other way to solve this unemployment crisis is to really look at capacitating young entrepreneurs giving them the skills to be able to run viable businesses as opposed to survivalist businesses.
2: In other African countries, we see thousands and thousands of young people leaving the country, whether it's through healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, trained professionals, or people, you know, taking perilous journeys across the Sahara, across the Mediterranean, stowing away as undocumented migrants. Do you see South African youth reacting in that way as well? You know, I think the youth still hold out
1: hope. This is their country. This is their home. And they want to stay. And I I think, having said that they hold out hope, they hope for their homeland to improve. But on the reverse is they don't believe they have the skill set to make it somewhere else. So there's, there's a, an imbalance there in terms of thinking. They're still hoping that they can do something here. I mean, if you looked at unemployed doctors, we are going to lose them because if they can't find work here, they're definitely going to go elsewhere. And I think as our youth become skilled, then they will probably leave when they can't find viable work. But the unskilled ones, um, the ones who are not in training and not employed, are hanging around in the hope that things will get better or They're doing it for themselves and creating their own small businesses.
2: Kirsten Alexander from Empower Youth in Johannesburg. We're in the Horn of Africa for our next story. It's a geopolitical cluster comprising Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea and Djibouti. But when we talk about the Horn as a geographic formation, we're really talking about Somalia. The country has the longest coastline in Africa, something which neighboring Ethiopia envies because Ethiopia is landlocked and desperately in need of a port. So Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed turned to Somaliland and got permission to use a port and build a naval base there. The problem is Somaliland is an unrecognized breakaway region of Somalia and therefore doesn't really have the autonomy to do this. Somalia warned Ethiopia not to go ahead with the deal. I should point out that the two countries have had a long and difficult relationship. And this is why I'm telling you the backstory. Somalia has now entered a military and economic deal with Turkey. It seems innocent on the face of it. Somalia's prime minister says the agreement will help remove fears of terrorism, piracy, illegal fishing, toxic dumping and any external violations or threats. But could the deal between Addis and Hargeisa be seen as a violation or a threat? Let's find out.
5: I'm um, Dr Hassan Kaninji, the director of the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies.
2: Just tell us what was the relationship first between Turkey and Somalia before this deal?
5: I think as opposed to a lot of engagements that Somalia has had with both regional as well as Gulf and foreign countries in the last 10 years, which has been fluctuating depending on whose presidency it is, the relationship with Turkey has been one of the most solid, bipartisan, and goes beyond the clan dynamics in Somalia. And so it is one of those special, I think, relationship that Somalia has been able to establish, making Turkey the biggest soft power outside actor, you know, within Somalia itself, as well as within the larger Somalia nation.
2: So this is a sub-military deal. What has Turkey done on the civilian side before now?
5: Turkey has invested heavily in civilian institutions as well as in security apparatus in Somalia. It's invested extremely you know, heavy in terms of education, putting up infrastructure, including you know airports and stuff like that, that has been able to win, I think, the hearts and minds of most people in Mogadishu, as well as elsewhere within Somalia.
2: Somalia's Prime Minister has described Turkey as a true and reliable brother. So tell us about this 10-year deal. What does it involve?
5: This 10-year deal involves a number of aspects, uh, both economic, commercial, and uh, fundamentally defence. And it is not surprising, I think it's important to remember, that even the previous administration had considered. Inviting Turkey, you know, to play a role, especially in rebuilding its naval assets and its naval power, not just against piracy, but also what was seen as perceived threats from the region as well as elsewhere. This, of course, is going to involve not only managing, especially uh, Somalia's maritime resources, but also establishing a naval force to be able to protect those resources, but also to fend off now the perceived threat that is supposed to be coming from Maddis Ababa. But I think fundamentally, Turkey is seeing an opportunity to make itself present in a more robust way, considering there's a likelihood that the Turkish naval assets are actually going to be physically present within the territory of Somalia.
2: Ethiopia has been quite bullish in its search for a port. It signed an MOU with Somalia's breakaway Somali land region. Do you think that this is ratcheting up tensions? Could we, for instance, see more robust, muscular, military formations, you know, Turkey bringing in, for instance, warships into Somali waters and so on, just to show Ethiopia that it has the capacity to fight back? In other words, I'm just wondering, does this heighten tensions there?
5: It heightens tensions, but it's also a preemptive move. Because considering that pact, it's unlikely that uh, Addis Ababa may move to try and build naval assets, even if this MOU it's actualized, uh, because Addis cannot compete Ankara when it comes to military power. And to the extent that Somalia has made it clear that this pact you know, is going to allow Ankara a free hand in terms of freedom of action, it's unlikely that that conflict is going to escalate into war, because there will be no one to fight. Because Ethiopia today doesn't have a naval force, you know, yet that can be able to do that. And neither is Somaliland's ability, which is pretty much very weak, if not non-existent, to be able to confront that. So what we expect is there going to be continued tension in the region, but Turkey also will not want to ruffle the feathers of too many people in the region, especially the countries, by becoming too muscular because it's going to isolate other key actors in the region, including Ethiopia itself, which I do not think... Turkey wants to isolate. I think one thing that is important to remember is Ankara played a role in the conflict in Tigray. And so, Ethiopia is also a strategic partner. But Somalia is critically a little more strategic when it comes to Turkey's desire for you know, power projection abroad, but also ensuring they have greater say within Red Sea geopolitics. And so, I think Turkey is going to be careful in terms of the messaging part of it. And I think This Defense Act is a lot more about messaging than about actual possibility of military confrontation, especially between Ankara on one side, allied with Somalia, and Addis Ababa on the other side, because Addis Ababa right now doesn't have a lot of allies when it comes to that question.
2: Turkey said this was about contributing to peace and stability in Somalia and to improve the organization and infrastructure of the Somali National Army as it battles al-Shabaab militants. So could this be the game changer for Somalia in its fight against al-Shabaab?
5: No, it's not a game changer in the fight against al-Shabaab. It adds value when it comes to probably being able to increase Somalia's own capacity for security services to take care of its own needs. However, it's important to remember that Turkey has been part of the Somali theater for more than a decade today. And that problem is still there. And uh, a lot of progress has actually been attributed to the efforts by the Amison forces as well as Atmis in trying to do that. And so it's not fundamentally a game changer, but it's a game changer when it comes to Somalia's ability perhaps to protect its territorial waters. But with regard to Al-Shabaab, there's a lot of institutional changes that is going to be required as well as economic and social aspects that need to be reformed to ensure that the threat posed by al-Shabaab is eliminated.
2: Excellent. Thank you so much. It's always an, a pleasure to talk to you.
5: I hope that was helpful.
2: Very. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. That's Dr. Hassan Kanenje from the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies based in Nairobi. There was strong reaction to this development from Somaliland. The President Musebihi, filled with anger, delivered a speech yesterday at an event held in the presidential palace in the capital,
0: Hargesa.
4: Your ideas and your outcry will never work. We will implement this MOU with Utopia and you cannot stop it. You will only make us your enemies. Let me also add that we will not give you control of our airspace. Call whoever you want. Whether it's Egypt or sign agreements with Turkey, nothing can stop us. To my people in Somaliland, don't listen to Somali presidents and don't take him seriously.
2: And that's Somaliland's president Bihi. We're traveling now from the Horn of Africa to the Bulge on the other end of the continent, and we're about to discuss another geopolitical crisis involving the economic community of West African states. It's an organization that began in 1975 at a time when African countries were trying to establish their own political identity regionally and internationally. The guiding principle was to build collective self-sufficiency by creating a borderless trading block that would bring peace and prosperity to the millions of people gathered under its umbrella. The Nigerian leader at the time, General Yakubu Gowon, was one of the founding fathers of ECOWAS.
5: This
4: is a momentous day, marking as it does the fulfillment of many hopes, the result of persistent efforts on the part of leaders From all corners of West Africa, another major and concrete step in giving practical effects to aspirations which we all share and which, in various previous meetings, we have all endeavoured since the beginning of the last decade to bring to
2: fruition. That was back in 1975. Fast forward nearly 50 years later and ECOWAS is facing a major crisis. Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso have left in a huff, taking with them about 15% of the population of the bloc. They're angry because ECOWAS suspended them for the military coups that had happened in those countries in recent years. The three nations say they want to form their own economic bloc. General Gowan is deeply unhappy about that. He set out his thoughts in a public letter read here by one of our producers.
5: It saddens me to learn that ECOWAS is threatened with disunity following the announcement by Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger, three important member states, of their intention to leave the community. The impact of such a decision will have far-reaching implications for the ordinary citizens who have been the major beneficiaries of regional integration. Therefore, on behalf of all the founding fathers of the community and myself, I urge the ECOWAS authority of heads of state and government, including the leaders of Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger, to put aside their differences and reunite for the peace, stability and prosperity of our sub-region.
2: That's General Yakubu go on, expressing his sadness at the decision by Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso to quit the organisation he was instrumental in setting up. Now let's explore what a new economic bloc made up of Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger would look like and how effective would it be given that the three countries account for just 8% of the regional economic output. Tenuola Tayo has some of the answers. She works on trade at the Africa Policy Research Institute. Let's start by talking about ECOWAS. Give us in broad strokes what it is and how it benefits countries in West Africa to belong to it?
0: So ECOWAS is the Economic Community of West African States, and it is one of the recognised regional economic communities by the African Union. It was founded in 1975 to promote Regional integration in West Africa. So, a lot of a couple of West African countries came together to, I mean, around things like common history, but also very much the geographic proximity to so pursue similar objectives of monetary integration, which is an eventual objective for the creation of a currency union, but then economic integration trade integration, and then the free movement of persons.
2: It brings together very, very different countries, right, with different histories. You've got Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso that have a French former colonial experience. And then you have Nigeria and Ghana, which are also very big countries, and Gambia, which have a British colonial experience. How does that affect how ECOWAS works together? And That's of relevance to us because we actually want to talk about Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso being expelled from ECOWAS because of recent coups in those countries.
0: So this is one of the challenges that we can see that we have within ECOWAS because there's the language divide that sometimes affects coordination or collaboration. One example is Nigeria that is surrounded by francophone countries but Nigeria speaks English so that makes uh, cross-border collaboration sometimes a bit difficult. There's also the fact that again the different histories, the different economic histories and even governance histories sometimes means that you have third-party actors within even ECOWAS integration projects. A good example is the common currency that has been proposed for over 20 years now, the ECHO. And uh, the last time that it was Postponed, or the last time that the launch of the currency was postponed was because of an announcement between the French government and the and the, the government of Cote d'Ivoire. So yes, ECOWAS is a is a region with many with many different players, including the current countries, the former colonies, and just different interests that sometimes conflict.
2: Right. So Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso were expelled, and there have also uh, economic sanctions placed on those nations. Just tell us, what is the economic strength of Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso, both together and separately, and how will their expulsion affect ECOWAS?
0: These are relatively small countries, economically speaking. I mean, geographically speaking, they're quite large, but then economically speaking, relatively small. But it's important, again, to remember that ECOWAS is actually generally a region of of small economies. Uh, when you try to compare the percentage of the GDP to the ECOWAS GDP, it seems pretty low, but that's because Nigeria is sort of like a distorting factor within those calculations. There's also the trade aspect of it. Uh, some of these countries are, you know, they have resources. So whether it's it's mineral deposits or whether it's oil. And that also has an implication for their weight within the region. But then there's a fact, the other fact that they are landlocked, meaning that a lot of their trade has to be um, with the collaboration of other West African countries. And that's, you know, landlocked countries have just a different dynamic when it comes to trying to estimate their weight within a region. So they're not insignificant, but then relatively small within the ECOWAS region.
2: Right. So I believe that 15 percent of the population of ECOWAS derives from Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso, but about 8 percent of trade. What are the sanctions that have been imposed?
0: sanctions have been imposed around, for example, trade access. So for example, when the the coup happened in Niger, Nigeria closed its borders with Niger. And this also affected the border communities because they were not able to trade across borders. Now within West Africa, a lot of the trade is informal. But then when there is a a closure of borders, it means that there's sort of like a higher premium on trying to get your goods across because then you have to pay higher bribes or you have to um, smuggle your goods across and that increases the transaction cost of trade. There have also been the financial sanctions so that have affected the banking system of these countries, and just the fact that they were generally suspended alongside Guinea, actually, from ECOWAS. And these have affected the economies in very different ways. And I think that that is why, for example, there was, to an extent, not a lot of popular support for ECOWAS within the countries, even after the, 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 the junta announced that they were going to withdraw from the region.
2: So the three countries retaliated by establishing a new federation. One What are they trying to do? Is it to rival ECOWAS or is it to put two fingers up to ECOWAS to say we don't care about your friendship and they're taking their ball home? Basically, you know, saying that it doesn't matter. They don't need ECOWAS.
0: It's a firm rejection of ECOWAS's attempts to impose um, democratic ideals uh, according to the ECOWAS charter on the countries. But also it's sort of like a, again a rejection of some of the sanctions because the sanctions did hurt people within the countries and this is sort of and rejoined from ECOWAS is almost about unlocking a worst case scenario where then there is nothing to really hold against them anymore. And there's been some talk about oh ECOWAS being a tool of foreign influence, but that is um is, is debatable because You know, there are other regional blocs that they're still part of. One example is the Wayamu, which part of the Wayamu is the country of the Francceffa, which they are yet to exit, although they say that they may start to talk about forming a different currency.
2: Can they go it alone as an economic bloc?
0: It's an interesting question to try to answer, because for them to withdraw from ECOWAS, they do believe that they can go it alone. But, you know, again, these are military administrators that are now just cutting their teeth on what it means to govern countries. In some of the countries, things have worsened. I think it was in Mali, where, for example, there's been a worsening of of the electricity supply situation and people are already beginning to complain and they're saying that it's because the junta is not able to properly administer the country because it's also affecting um, businesses and even incomes in the country. They do have the materials or the resources that they can potentially exploit and maybe process and maybe you know start to increase incomes for their people. Yeah, but, of course we took um, it we looking at we're
2: looking at Nigeria and not we and uranium. The fact that exactly, the exactly. EU gets 50% of its uranium from Niger and there's also gold.
0: Exactly. So those ma- those resources are there. But then even with democratic governance, we've struggled really within the region to properly harness um, some of these resources in ways that are beneficial to our citizens. You know, there's a question of who will be the investors, the leading investors that can help them to do that? And what terms are are these investments going to come in on? Maybe they've gotten some guarantees from some players, you know, some, some players from outside the continent.
2: Well, Russia right now is the main actor in Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso. Do you see that relationship yielding the results that you're talking about where people, where, you know, where there's a more equitable distribution of the national wealth?
0: I mean, Russia is the actor that, yes, I was referring to. And I think the thing with Russia is that Russia also has a lot on its hands domestically and, and regionally within its own sub-region. I mean, we would hope that even as they you know, are dealing with Russia, that there is some sense of trying to put the interests of the countries first, uh, because certainly Russia will be putting its own interests first. So is this goodbye forever? I wouldn't say it's goodbye forever because um, I mean I like to say that the only thing that's constant in life is change. And historically, <laughs> we're the region that we've often had unstable governments. So I do think that you know there is many different there are many different things that can happen that can result in a reversal of their decision. They have about about a year, according to Ecowas, according to the Ecowas on um, charter, to withdraw their withdrawal. If we put it that way. And it's possible that perhaps domestic pressures can cause um, a return to Ecowas, although we are not seeing those trends yet because at the moment it seems that there is more popular mobilization against Ecowas. Is this
2: unprecedented? This risk, uh, you know withdrawal of three countries.
0: I mean, the withdrawal of three countries at a go is not something that I think has happened before, uh, and I think that it's sort of like an alignment of different situations at the same time. So first of all, that they were connected. Uh, geographically, And then perhaps some sh- sort of shared experiences, you know, being in the Sahel, the conflicts that is affecting the Sahel is also shared, you know, by the three countries, whether it's the banditry or some of the violence extremism that is going on there. And even some of the other things about the ties to other um, non-Western powers. So it was an alignment of different factors that probably allowed for this to happen. But again, you know, these are military leaders and there's a question of how resilient their cooperation is going to be. In my own opinion, I think that even the coalition that they have formed, if they feel like it's beginning to encroach on their own individual interests, you may hear one country announcing that they are exiting the coalition. I mean, nobody knows. So they have those shared objectives at the moment and we'll see how long those shared objectives hold.
2: Excellent. Thank you so much. This has been really, really interesting, Tenyola. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That's Tenyola Tayo from the Africa Policy Research Institute. Focus on Africa was put together by Sunita Nahar, Bella Hassan and Rob Wilson here in London. Charles Kitonga brought it from Nairobi. Kani Sharp kept us on the ball. Jonathan Greer was our technical producer. Andre Lombard and Alice Mudengi are our editors. I'm Audrey Brown and we'll talk again next time. In 1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising Black student-athletes upside down. I don't think we realize what the true flavor of Wyoming was back in 1969. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14.
4: There was a rebel Confederate flag being flown.
5: It was different. It was definitely different.
2: Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.